the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number two underway now at seven minutes past ten o'clock. It's a Wednesday. It's a weird day to be a cursing out there, but it is indeed that. 16th morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Let's bring him on. We missed him yesterday. We asked Pete if he could move for us so that we could uh, raise over $10,000 to save babies' lives with our preborn campaign. We did exactly that. We were actually trying to raise, raise 5000 but... Uh, once again, this tremendous audience outdid itself, and uh, we went 205% of our goal yesterday, which is amazing. And I'm sure Peter Kirstenau is willing to go a day late to make something great like that happen. He is a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He is a best-selling author. He is a columnist. He is a uh, sometimes law professor. He is also the host of the Kirstenau Report right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter Kirstenau, good morning, good sir. Good morning, Bob. I just want to reiterate uh, something that you've been talking about here, and that is that uh, in March, you know, we're going to be having the Bringing America Back to Life convention at the NBC Suites in Independence. I haven't been there in a few years, but I'll be there again on Friday, March 11th at 1030. Uh, And I'll give you a rip-roaring speech at that time. I've got a lot to say, and uh, it's a great, great, great event. I know you're going to be emceeing. There will be a lot of great guests there. Uh, The last time I was there was a phenomenal event. Uh, The people there are just some of the, the finest people on the face of the earth. So I encourage everybody to do whatever they can to get there. Pete, I'm so looking forward to that. Uh, it's going to be a great two days, and I'm especially looking forward to your speech. I've heard you live a few different times, and uh, when you already pre-sell it as rip-roaring, I can only imagine what we're in for <laughs> on, on March 11th. A rip-roaring speech from Peter Kirstenau is going to be worth the price of admission alone. All right, Peter Kirstenau, uh, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back to what I've been discussing for the first hour, particularly with the member of the Canadian Parliament, about the... Um, uh, the heavy-handed dictatorial uh, nonsense of Justin Trudeau against the Freedom Convoy. But I want to start with heavy-handedness here in American government. We found out a couple of days ago that um, John Durham has released a part of his report. Uh, he is still doing a lot more very important work. So he exists, by the way. A lot of us wondered if he actually existed because we kept hearing about John Durham, the special counsel, and his investigation. But for two and a half years, we've heard nothing. Um, so he came out and found this and reported this, that the Hillary Clinton campaign, which was suspected of spying on the Trump campaign in Trump Tower, went one step further. It's worse than anybody thought. They continued, after losing the election, to continue to spy on Donald Trump by way of hiring tech firms to infiltrate the computer uh, servers of the White House to spy on a sitting president. 
because losing was just too much to bear. Remember, they called Donald Trump the purveyor of the big lie because he says the election was stolen in 2020. Hillary Clinton was so convinced that Russians uh, uh, had helped Donald Trump beat her, it's the only way she could have lost, that she was going to try to undo the election by spying on him in the Oval Office as a sitting president. So, Pete, you've heard most of the details, as have most Americans on this show and others in the last couple of days. The question is, how do you react to it? Um, The question is, really, how do we all react? And there's no such thing as an overreaction. In fact, I still maintain, despite the fact that much of the right is upset about this, that we're underreacting by an order of magnitude, at least. I've said even before these revelations, and I think you've concurred, that this is the greatest political scandal in American history. And the latest revelations uh, uh, just magnify that significantly, and it can't be understated. One of the giveaways that this is a big deal is the assiduous way in which major media is avoiding talking about it. Consider, for three and a half years, every major media organ peddled the outright, completely false Russia collusion lie. They peddled it as if it was proven in a court of law, not just simply allegations. And they kept peddling it, and it was 24-7. Now what you hear are crickets. And we've been saying for a long time that this was a huge, huge uh, scandal and charade perpetrated by not just the Clinton campaign, but virtually every aspect of what we colloquially call the deep state with the assistance, the active assistance of a corrupt media. Ironically, the Washington Post, right after Trump won the election, put on its masthead, democracy dies in the darkness. And I didn't realize that that was a goal of theirs when they put that (laughs) up there. That's precisely what they're doing right now. Democracy will die. It may already be dead for all we know, given the depth. What's astonishing to me, and we've been talking about this, I've always thought that, you know, much of the bureaucracy, in fact, I've I've told you my experiences, I'd say 90% plus of the bureaucracy leans not just left, but heavily left. And that's one of the things I told to President Trump, uh, as if he needed to be told this, uh, within a couple of days of the election. I pointed out the uh, numbers um, in polling data that the bureaucracy had had, uh, voted 95, 99%, depending upon which department you're talking about. The Defense Department was the lowest in the 70s still uh, in favor of Clinton. But we have seen the marshalling of the quote-unquote deep state, the FBI, the CIA, all the intelligence agencies, the bureaucracies, in an effort to not just help Hillary Clinton win, which was bad enough, but then to undo the election and stage effectively a coup. Remember, with these latest revelations, what we're finding out, as you just indicated, that they spied not only on the campaign and the transition, we knew about the transition because of the whole Michael Flynn thing, but then thereafter on a sitting president. It's astonishing. It, 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 this Watergate is a traffic ticket compared to this multiple murder allegation here. This is extraordinary. And, and you've heard me say from time to time that, um, you know, just because something is lawful doesn't mean it's right. Well, here what we have from the filings are not just illegality, but a complete and utter assault 
on the structure of our government and our way of life. They were trying to unseat a president of the United States, and they were able to get so many different instrumentalities within the government to assist them without even blinking, apparently. Um, this isn't just about the Steele dossier. Remember, during the Steele dossier, all of it was completely manufactured. Bob, you and I, I remember saying on your program several years ago that one of the reasons why I knew instantaneously <laughs> that everything pertaining to the Russia collusion scandal was a complete and utter fabrication was because this was the first time in my lifetime that I ever saw Democrats concerned about Russia. I, and I'm serious. When I heard that, I said, you've got to be kidding me. And then you dig into the details and you see how phony it was. Everyone knew it, but the media ran with it. So one of the greatest indications that this is a very, 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 very big deal, which it is, is the fact that the media is assiduously trying to ignore every aspect of it. This is a coup. And it started well before. Remember, it can, think of the continuum on this, Bob. It's extraordinary. All the, the details of this. We, we, we have the Hillary email scandal. She smashes and destroys subpoenaed emails. She gets exonerated by the FBI, allegedly exonerated by Comey, after an investigation in which emails are released where, remember, the struck in page emails where they, they say to one another, hey, you know, do we really want to get on the wrong side of the person who may be the next president of the United States? This is how they were shaping their investigation. Comey just stands up and exonerates her and remember the tarmac meeting between Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton that we're all supposed to say, you know, there's nothing to see here. Move along. I mean, it, this extraordinary chain of events that occurred and then out thereafter, of course, all the things that happened after Trump got elected, the bogus alleg allegations. But uh, as, as soon as Trump gets elected, they start spying on, remember, Mike Flynn. They set him up. They entrapped him. They admitted they tried to entrap him. And they, they ruined his life. They caused him to spend millions of dollars in his own defense. He had to sell his own house. This is a guy who did absolutely nothing wrong, but in their zeal to get to Trump, they had no problems destroying him and the rule of law, and they would have destroyed the, the republic if that were what was necessary to achieve power. Then also keep in mind, during this entire time, the January 5th, 2017 meeting, this is during the transition when Obama was still in office, January 5th, Obama, Biden, Susan Rice, James Comey, the whole crew were together. Sally Yates, who was then acting attorney general, and they were trying to figure out when you piece all the, uh, the, the, take all the pieces, put them together. They were trying to figure out how do they continue to monitor Trump. Go back to those conversations. All of a sudden, the pieces start to fall together in this puzzle. And then the famous January 20th, the day of the inauguration, in fact, two minutes after Trump is actually inaugurated, <laughs> Susan Rice is still in the, uh, the administrative offices and sends the greatest CYA memo of all time that Obama said, do everything by the book. I mean, when you piece all of this together, the number of people, the number of agencies, the number of departments, the complicity of uh, big companies and media, we can see that we have a major fight on our hands, fellow Americans. It's fellow Americans, good, 
honest, hardworking Americans, the ones who enlist in the military, the ones who pay their taxes, the ones who are left behind in Afghanistan. And then we have this oligarchy of the privileged and the elite, those who went to the right schools but learned absolutely nothing except how to make connections with other like-minded people. This is an abomination. We are seeing right now the rotting of the American uh, uh, experiment from the inside out, and we have to fight it tooth and nail. Peter, um, it's it's not that you need any more grist for the mill here, but um, it's more than just the media, you know, blacking out uh, the coverage of this uh, and dismiss, dismissing it. They're actively trying to undermine the mm-hmm. accuracy of the report by Durham. Um, I've, I'm not going to play it for you, but I can just I'll just tell you about it. Um, because I've got a five-minute clip here of it on MSNBC. One of their guests, an independent journalist named Marcy Wheeler, uh, went on their air yesterday and declared that the Durham investigation is in real trouble. Not Hillary Clinton and her team. The Durham investigation is real trouble because he was fed conspiracy theories by Fox News guests. That's where he, That was the uh, source of his investigation and the source of uh, the indictment that he issued was from Fox News guests. He was watching TV, and then those were the people uh, that led him to the places that he went. So they're, they're literally trying to undermine the credibility of the investigator, in this, in this case, uh, Mr. Durham. Yeah, and Bob, you've probably seen these uh, charts and graphs over the years that show truly the... Um, um, the relationship between media and the Democratic Party. Many of the major news reporters and anchors, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, are literally in bed with, they are married to high-ranking members of the Democratic Party. And what you're getting here is what we are getting. And, you know, look, let's be very honest about it. It sounds hysterical, hysterical but it's truly propaganda. They are withholding information that is critical for the American people to have in order to uh, have a functioning republic. And then they feed us lies. For three and a half years, they fed us a bald-faced lie. Nothing was true. They awarded themselves Pulitzers. They went to the right parties. They gave each other big raises. All of it was false. And it was 24-7. Now they're trying to ignore this. This is, and, and look what it's given us. It's given us Joe Biden. It's given us this disaster of a president. They're the ones who wouldn't report on huge scandals, just the little bit that we know about with respect to Hunter Biden's uh, laptop and right. all the things that were revealed on there and all the, cons- the, the corruption there and the complicity and, and the compromise with respect to Ukraine and China and other places. Keep, look, we just heard today, as if, I mean, this week, as if it's a minor thing that Hunter Biden was involved in getting that giant cobalt mine in Congo sold to the Red Chinese as opposed to us. We need that cobalt. This is extraordinary, but nothing. It is. You know, and and by the way, don't, 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 don't leave out the big tech uh, uh, giants who uh, were complicit in this as well, because the one media outlet that did report on the laptop, the New York Post, of course, was summarily blocked by, right. by Twitter. So, you know, there's, yep. it's one thing for the media, the mainstream media, to be, you know, derelict, derelict in their duty. Uh, it's another thing for when one of them does it, now the people can't see it because social media uh, uh, giants and, and oligarchs, speaking of oligarchies, um, uh, these individuals suppress the, the, the data. Uh, Pete, let's take a time out here at 1021. We've got a lot more with Kirsten now coming up. Always right, AM 1420, The Answer. 
Welcome back to Always Right with Bob Frantz on AM 1420. The answer. Always indeed. 1024, we continue on AM 1420. The answer now with Peter Kirsten. Hey, Pete. Um, I introduced you at the beginning uh, by running down several of your titles and occupations and side jobs and gigs. And one of those, <laughs> one of those was best-selling author. And uh, you're hard at work again, and we've got a new one coming out on August 16th, a W.E.B. Griffin story written by Peter Kersenow. Can you explain? Yeah, Bob, thanks for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I am ghostwriting for the W.E.B. Griffin estate. W.E. Griffin had um, over 25 New York Times bestsellers, and he, uh, a lot of your audience are well familiar with him. He's wrote, written so many great spy novels and mainly military novels. And uh, they've asked me to ghostwrite the Men at War series, which I was excited to do because I've read so many of his novels. Well, not all of them, but, but most of them. And so that comes out on August 16th. It's a rip-roaring thriller. Um, it's very exciting. It's historical fiction, which means it's got a lot of history in there, but I uh, fill in the blanks, the unknown parts, with uh, some fiction that is uh, similar to some of the other books I've written. A lot of action, of course, in World War Sounds II. Sounds like there the 1619 Project. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit of history filled with a whole bunch of fiction, right? <laughs> There's a lot more truth in mine than the 1619 Project. So it's a lot of fun. You're right. It's coming out in August. You can get it on Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, every place, Target, you name it. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a great read. And I, I don't mean to say that just because I've read it all. That's part of the reason I say it, but it is. It's, it's, uh, you know, everyone who's seen it so far has said the same thing. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's historically uh, accurate with respect to the, the aspects that you have to have accuracy about and it took a lot of research to get it historically accurate because as you know you get a little things like this the, the historians come out of the woodwork if you get the, the slightest thing wrong and i did at one point in one of my drafts but i caught it within about a, a day or so with respect to it, it occurs during the operation barbara so there's there's a lot of spy stuff in it there are actual events going on it so it's a lot of fun but uh thanks for that opportunity and also yeah. uh, another one of my novels will be coming out we don't have a publication date yet but it's going to be in the next few months uh it's called the black russian and it's another one of my uh oh, it's an autobiography novels yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so uh it's a lot of fun uh you know all of my books have tons and tons of action if you are somebody who loves james bond the man from uncle and all that stuff and all the mad uh you know the the the, the jack bauer stuff these are the type of novels for you a little bit more sophisticated uh but they're a lot of fun yeah and i'm just having fun with the titles by the way the black russian by the way could also be about a bartender as far as i know uh but I think we'll just <laughs> take a look at that uh but yeah the men at war series uh with uh, from uh, w.e.b griffin uh tremendous that peter Kirsten now has been asked to write these and very much looking forward to that it can be pre-ordered now i'm looking at the amazon page and it says pre-order price guarantee so i'm not exactly sure what you've got to do but go ahead and check it out uh, just google up no don't google duck duck go up uh, on Amazon, uh, the, uh, uh, the Devil's Weapons, Men at War, the W.E.B. Griffin series written by Peter Kersenow. Check it out and pre-order that coming out in August. All right, Pete, short one here because we're uh, coming up against the, the bottom of the hour. I want you to chew on this after you hear it. Uh, Justin Trudeau is the prime minister up in Canada, and he's, uh, his, his idols apparently are not uh, you know other Canadian prime ministers that came before him. He rather idolizes the likes of, I don't know, people like Mao or modern-day uh, descendants of Mao in the Chinese Communist Party. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Justin Trudeau's word for it. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. Um, 
because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, so this is before he was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Stephen Harper was. He was actually suggesting that Harper wanted to be a dictator, but it was his words. I admire China. I admire that that dictatorship allows you to turn things around on a dime because you have flexibility when you don't have to consider the will of the people and what's good for the people. Pete, this is the man who just imposed what they call the Emergencies Act in Canada, never, ever been done before, which gives him essentially dictatorial powers. Yeah, you know, sometimes when people say things like that, they say it in kind of a, in ironic or whimsical fashion. Um, I think that we have to give this more credence than this simply being a lighthearted kind of uh, uh, statement. You know, there, there are some, and there is actually substantial evidence of this, that say that he's more than just an admirer of Fidel Castro, that he may actually be Fidel Castro's illegitimate son. Um, and that's not just something that's been made up. There is some evidence that that may in fact be the case. Regardless of that, he seems to have taken into himself the views of, say, a Castro or some of the other totalitarians we've seen throughout the world. It's not simply limited to Justin Trudeau. Uh, We have seen the emergence of a totalitarian mindset uh, in so many quarters of our own country where people say things that you would not even have thought were were plausible or, or could have actually be said although America's land of the free, people were a little bit smarter, a little bit more circumspect, and they wouldn't be saying things such as, I admire China or I admire Castro. Uh, but you're seeing this in many quarters on the left. You're seeing it throughout the, the, the world. Whenever you go, and I've never been to Davos, I'm not one of the, you know, uh, uh, the uh, beautiful people, but if you read some of the transcripts of what happens in Davos, and I wish that it was open to the public and people could see it, because when you see some of the snippets of things that are said, uh, it's extraordinary. We do have a world elite that is closer to the totalitarian mindset than the li- uh, liberty mindset. And that's extremely, extremely troubling. One of the reasons why they were up in arms about Trump was he was the opposite of all of them. And they viewed him as a giant, giant threat. They didn't view, with all due respect, you know, I I will give my props to the Bushes, uh, in contrast to some of the other folks we've had, but they never viewed the Bushes of the world or many other alleged conservatives as a threat to the world order. Trump was the biggest threat they'd ever witnessed, and you saw all the marshalling of resources against him. So uh, Justin Trudeau, to say this, no big surprise. What we have to do is listen to what everyone else is saying. They don't say it as stupidly as uh, Trudeau or, say, an AOC, but watch their actions, and their actions will tell you precisely where they're going and who they admire. Yeah, and uh, and their actions now are indeed going to cripple the Canadian people if they have any support or show it through their expenditures for the Canadian truckers and the convoy, because that is what he has done now. Through the this act, he has ordered the banks to freeze the assets. In other words, freeze the accounts, the funds, make them inaccessible to anybody who is spending those uh, their funds on supporting the truckers. That means they're monitoring transactions under orders of the prime minister and freezing the accounts of the people. It's unbelievable. What he said whimsically clearly is something he desired deep, uh, deeply in his uh, uh, in his in his soul. Ten thirty one.
News time. Curse and Out continues with us after this. threat to your health get your booster of common sense and keep yourself sane always right with bob france on am 1420 the answer all right we continue now with peter kirsten now it's 10 38 i've got 22 minutes of outstanding awesome left for you in this broadcast uh pete i want to talk about race now because why not uh how can we not in when it's brought up in literally every single facet of our lives i want to go to the uh new mayor of new york city whose name is eric adams now, you may recall that Bill de Blasio, the former mayor of New York City, didn't exactly have a sterling approval rating or reputation, uh, in, uh, particularly in his last couple of years of his term, because crime in New York City spiked out of control. De Blasio took a lot of heat for that. I'm sure you heard all of that. Well, it is spiking even more now in, uh, in New York City and a lot of other places, having probably not as much to do with mayoral policies as it does with district attorneys and judges giving uh, either no bail or, uh, you know, light sentencing and so forth, uh, you know, with the, which uh, does not necessarily deter cri- criminals from committing crimes. But Mayor Eric Adams is tired of hearing about how bad the crime in his city is. And he has determined that the reason why the coverage of that crime is as as negative as it is is because, well, because of this. I'm a black man. That's the mayor. But my story has been interpreted by people that don't look like me. We got to be honest about that. How many blacks are in the editorial boards? How many blacks have determined how these stories are being written? How many Asians? How many East Indians? How many South Asians? Everybody talks about my government being diversified. What's the diversification in the newsrooms? So everybody go back with their predispositions. And my role as mayor is being interpreted through the prisms of your realities and not mine. Pete, I'll stop it there just because I don't think I need to hear anymore. Um, essentially, if you're white or non-black, you are going to write negative stories about the crime in this country. If I was a white mayor, you'd be hunky-dory. Sorry, not this country, this city. If I was a white mayor, you'd be all hunky-dory. I said hunky, not honky. You'd be hunky-dory uh, with um, <laughs> with the crime and the and the rate of crime that we have going on in this city. Pete, your reaction. I think a lot of people had some uh, high hopes for Eric Adams, at least in contrast to the previous disaster uh, as mayor of New York. Um, And, you know, he said a lot of the right things, and he's a former cop, and you thought Mm -hmm. that maybe he'd take a different approach. And he has, to some extent, he's taken a different approach, but, I mean, son of a gun, uh, almost anybody would take uh, a different approach from de Blasio, who's a failure on so many levels. But... um, uh, it, very, very disappointing. I was hoping he'd be, you know, a breath of fresh air. He, the, the thing is, he's complaining about the reality of New York, which is a disaster zone right now. That is irrefutable. And if people are writing stories, in fact, they, most of the stories that the media has been writing about crime across America has been putting a spin on it because they know that the Democrats, you can draw a direct line 
between what the Democrats and progressives were saying two years ago and over the next last couple of years about defunding cops, about, you know, uh, lightning prosecutions and emptying prisons and bail reform and all that stuff. You can draw a direct line from that to the spike in crime. And we were looking at this at the Civil Rights Commission. I will tell you that many of my civil rights colleagues on the left don't want to address it because they know, they know that all of their idiot policies are directly responsible for the spike in crime. Now, uh, you may remember in, from, I think it was elementary school, Samuel Johnson saying that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. I've said for quite some time, and I think many people agree, that playing the race card is the first refuge of a loser. When you start saying that the reason why you guys are treating me a certain way is because I'm black, you've lost already. And you're coming up with excuses for failures that you can take it, that you, you should take responsibility for. Now, I will say this for Eric Adams. I don't blame him for what's going on right now uh, in New York, although I will blame him say, in the next few weeks. He's only been on the job for a short period of time. No one, I believe, expects him to turn things around immediately. But but why doesn't he just po- say that? Why doesn't he just say, you know what, look, I just got here. I'm implementing reforms. We are cracking down. We have a lot of plans here to reduce violent crime in New York. Give us some time rather than quit complaining just because I'm black. You, you don't like yeah, it. I- you, don't like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's all, I mean, he didn't play it last you know, as a last resort, the race card, he played it from the top of the deck. It's like, hey, yeah. you can't write bad about me because you and your editorial boards and your reporting staffs are predominantly white. You're ripping a black mayor because he's a black mayor. That, that, that's what's yeah, that's, so unappealing that's really about that's disappointing, this. and it's one of the things that's going to you know, throw more kerosene on the fire. This, this is not what a leader should be doing at all, at all. Take, look, take responsibility for that which is yours, Make the place better. Sit down and keep your mouth shut and work hard. That's what you should be doing. You know, I mean, New Yorkers, whether they are black, Asian, Hispanic, or white, want the crime problem solved, and that's why he's mayor. Everybody is rooting for him to be successful in solving the crime problem. Nobody gives a blank about what color he is, provided he solves the crime problem. So simply because he feels as if he's besieged because it's a big job, you know, he may be overwhelmed, doesn't mean he should be playing the race card. It simply exacerbates the the problem. Again, playing the race card is the first refuge of a loser. And that's why you hear progressives play the race card over and over and over again because their policies are loser policies. So what do they do? Shiny object of racism to distract your attention, and they continue to do the stupid things that result in these spikes in crime that are hurting the very people they claim to want to help. Pete, I want to pivot since we're talking about race and its factor in the way things are covered or its role in the way things are covered maybe is a better way to say that. Virtually every place I look uh, at the Olympic coverage, uh, it's the it's the first thing that is talked about whenever there is an African American um, being successful in these Winter Games. Uh, headline: Speed skater Erin Jackson becomes first Black woman to win gold medal in individual event at Winter Games. Erin Jackson brings home gold, first Black woman to win speed skating medal at the Winter Olympics, and on and on and on and on we go. I don't care. I'm not trying to be mean. I don't care. Is she wearing red, white, and blue? Then I'm happy for her. That's it. 
I don't care if she, I, her victory as a black woman means no more to me than a downhill slalom or or uh, I don't even know what some of the events are uh, in on the, on the slopes. I'm not a winter sports guy, and I'm not paying attention to these games because these are the games of the Beijing genocide. Um, but I, I I wouldn't care if it's a white woman or male going down the slopes or if it's a black female on the ice. Why do we have to announce the person's race? That's that's number one. And the number two, Pete, for your consideration, is um, her name is um, Kelly Curtis. Team USA tweeted out on February 10th, so this apparently was a few days ago, College track star Kelly Curtis is making history at the Winter Olympics as the first black Olympian to represent the U.S. in skeleton. Now, the same questions I just asked about the speed skater are, uh, apply here. First black Olympian, but in this case, it's a little bit more interesting. This is why I want you to comment on it. This girl looks as white as I do. Um, and, and I'm trying to figure out, is this a Rachel Dolezal part two? I mean, is she really black or just identifies black? Well, come to find out. Her mother is white. Her father is biracial. So if you're doing the math, she's roughly three-quarters white and one-quarter black. But she is being called the first black to represent um, the United States in uh, in skeleton, for whatever reason. So my question to you, Peter Kersenow, as a black man, is this. If white privilege exists, as we are told by the left that it does, in this country... If systematic oppression of black people exists in this country, why would somebody who is biracial, much less three-quarters to one-quarter uh, white over black, continue to identify as black? If that race is treated so horribly by our systemically racist nation, and white privilege is conferred upon those who are white, why is it that every single, at least person in the news that I'm aware of, celebrities... Every single individual that's biracial chooses to emphasize their blackness if there is privilege in their whiteness. Can you explain that to me? And anyway, as a black man, how do you see that? Oh, yeah, I can. Ex- I got a lot to say about that, of course, uh, if you've got a couple hours. But let me just say a couple <laughs> things, a, a couple of just easy things, because that's a layup. Um, as some of your listeners may be aware to go along with your point of, you know, how could it be that somebody who's oppressed starts talking about or, or highlighting the things that allegedly make them oppressed? You know, wouldn't you kind of cover that up? Remember that, you know, there was still a time um, in the uh, lives of some of the listening public right now, mainly, mainly those who are 60, 70, 80 years old, when blacks, some blacks who were light-skinned would try to pass as white. And that was during a time before, say, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, when discrimination on the basis of race was still lawful in many sectors in terms of employment, at least. And so blacks would try to pass, if they could, as white. A recent survey was done that showed that 34% of white students applying to college lie on their applications and say that they are of black descent, Hispanic descent or Native, Amer- or Native American descent, Asian, no, no, nobody does Asian. That's right. Nobody does Asian because they're the most affirmatively discriminated against. That's right. So if, if it's a privilege to be white, why would you lie about it? 
in order to get into a school? Well, we all know the answer to that. In addition, maybe I missed something, Bob. You're going to have to draw my attention to where I've missed it. But, you know, every once in a while I see what's going on at the border, and I've yet to see a white face among the two million people who've crossed the border in the last year trying to get into this country to be apparently discriminated against on the basis of race and horribly oppressed. This is the least racist country in the history of the world. Without question. And in fact, if you took, take a look at who's being advantaged by official policy, either a governmental policy or um, that of an institution, any type of major institution, whether it be academic institution, corporations, law firms, it is people of color, unequivocally. But what we are being told over and over again in history classes, in uh, in various DEI, that's diversity, equity, inclusion trainings at the corporate level and in state government and federal government, is that, my goodness, it's white privilege, and in fact, you are oppressed by virtue of how much melanin you've got in your skin. It's one of the great lies. It's the big lie theory. You know, you go back to Nazi Germany and, and Soviet Union, the big lie theory. Tell something often enough and becomes the truth, they're accepted as the truth. And also ask yourself, what can you or can't you say these days? Well, you can't say in public, you can't be in a company or at a law firm in a meeting and say anything that goes against the narrative, the narrative that you are white privileged. You can't do that. I mean, just this morning when I was working out on my treadmill and watching my, my television, there was some, some um, uh, segment on the former president of uh, Levi's. Okay, there are certain things that you can, everyone knows it, your listeners, people in the cars, people who may be listening on their radios or, or on their computers at their offices know something very well. They keep their heads down and their mouths shut when they ever, whenever they're in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, but generally speaking, at their various companies. They say nothing that's contrary to the mythology of white privilege. They will not dare do that. Okay, you don't hear something similar from people of color. You don't. I'm one of them. I'm right here. You don't hear that. Okay, it's it's astonishing what we are accepting in this country. Now we shouldn't be reacting. I would say we shouldn't be um, uh, uh, rejecting this in a violent way or in a way that gives people you know a pause. We we are all striving to be Americans, but we must reject it vehemently as a theoretical proposition. This is not America. It's not the reality of America. It's not the foundational principles of America, regardless of what the 1619 Project lie would have us believe. This is poison, and this is precisely what our enemies want. They want us at each other's throats. This is the most, if you want to talk about inclusion, it's the most inclusive country in the history of the world. And I'm sick of these media folks who they've been you know, trained at these various universities to go along paint by color. That's all they do, paint by color. There's nothing more divisive than that. And I'm sick of them telling me about that. I don't want to hear about this stuff. I still, look, I'm old enough to remember when we would have the first of everything. And I was one of them, you know, the, the, the first person in a law, a black person in a law firm, all those kinds of things. You know, I mean, that happened. Guess what? That was 40, 50 years ago. I'm not saying everything's perfect. But what the reality of America is, is completely contrary to what our so-called betters, so-called elites would have us believe, because it's in their best interests to do something like divide America, and also they, it makes them feel good about themselves. Now, think about one thing, BLM, okay? BLM got literally 
hundreds of millions of dollars in donations, literally hundreds of millions of dollars in donations. And you talk about Trudeau shutting down the truckers and the GoFundMe pages and things of that nature, the, the give, send, go. Um, he was the guy who was celebrating BLM that was destroying bil- bil- buildings, billions of dollars worth of buildings right. destroyed, scores of people killed as the result of BLM. They got all kinds of money. Look at these truckers, and you get an idea of what the elite think about ordinary people, whether they wow. be Americans or Canadians or otherwise free people. Well, you know, you got to tell the truth about these truckers. Are they are blowing their horns? You know, so that's you know. You, I know they you, you can't justify that behavior. That's like just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Peter Kirsten out. Pete, by the way, I'm eventually going to train you to say D I E instead of D E I. It's die. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exactly what it's doing. Is it's killing our culture. It's killing it this is. country. It's die. So make sure you say diversity, inclusion, and equity. Hey, Pete, always a pleasure. Thank you for bringing your wisdom and dropping knowledge on us. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, Bob. All right, 1054, right back after this. When you need real news, write meow. All right, meow. And over your license and registration. Turn to always write. Hurry up, meow. With Bob France. No buts, meow. On AM 1420. All right, meow, where were we? The answer. All right, Bill is in Wellington. I'll squeeze a couple of calls in before the end of the broadcast this morning. Hi, Bill, go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, I just wanted to pick up on what Pete said. I had originally called to, to say something about uh, 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 Trudeau and Castro. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Trudeau's father was very good friends with Castro. And in fact, uh, his father, when he died, Castro attended the funeral. And he said somewhat the basic things that he said about China, he said about uh, uh, Cuba. So uh, that's, you know, and Castro. So I have seen some of that coverage, yeah. I know that, uh, you know, the, the family was very close with him. Some have gone further and said that's because Castro is actually his father uh, and that sort of thing, and I think that might be crossing the line a little bit. But you're right. There is obviously an admiration there, and it says something. You know, he has he's verbally articulated his admiration for communist China, and now, obviously, uh, you talk about his friendship with and perhaps admiration for communist Cuba and Castro, and it tells you how he's wired and maybe why he's treating the Canadian people the way that he is. Um, so I think that's, that's bet, a great point. Yeah. And I'll bet he didn't talk about it before he was elected either. <laughs> well, he did on the on the China one. The, the clip that I played earlier oh, was did. actually, yeah, Stephen Harper was still the prime minister there, and he, he talked about it as the leader of the Liberal Party, essentially doing what liberals do here, and that is uh, accusing others of that which they themselves are guilty. So he accused Harper of wanting to be a dictator, when obviously he himself uh, has the admiration for dictators. So thank you, my friend. I appreciate the phone call. Thank you to uh, my guest today, Randy Hillier, speaking of Canada, member of Canadian Parliament, keeping us updated on the truckers' uh, convoy up there. And, of course, Peter Kersenow. Thanks to Marcy and thanks to Johnny for running the show. And thanks to you. Once again, by the way, for donating to Preborn, we set a new record yesterday. It was phenomenal. Everyone have a great day. Let's go, Brandon. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.